What about dinosaurs? That's easy. <laughs> now, compared to what we talked about last night, um, well, God made dinosaurs on the sixth day, like He made the other animals, and uh, approximately 6,000 years ago, something like that. And, and they're originally vegetarians, and uh, they're on the ark during the global flood. Uh, most of them die, but, you know, pairs of them go on the ark. And uh, then eventually they're, they die out due to human activity or uh, climate changes or other factors. That's, that's the short version. <laughs> um, but when you, think about, when you think about dinosaurs, a lot of people wonder, well, you know, if God created this world without any uh, death or violence or whatever, then why carnivores? And, and why dinosaurs? You might ask that question. And uh, if you think about it, the Bible says that carnivores like lions will one day eat straw. It's Isaiah 65, 25. It says, the, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. So, when you look at the, the future plan, it seems very plausible that that was the original plan. And uh, and that at some point, God had to make some changes. Um, and you think about it in Genesis 3, 17 and 18, God describes that there's a, a curse that, that falls on the land. And the curse includes that there, there's thorns and thistles that are growing up. And it seems, like, it seems reasonable that God could see the potential problems with sin and how death and decay would need some cleanup crews and uh, how uh, maybe some um, irresponsibility might lead to some herd thinning requirements. And so you have um, animals that God adapts to make work with this new environment of sin. I mean, if a God can create, the, there's just as much power for Him to adapt. And uh, if He did that adaptation for when there was sin and death, He could reverse that adaptation for going back to the original plan. So, dinosaurs at the beginning, I say they're, they were vegetarians, and God made them. The flood happened, climate stuff happened, people happened, they died off, except for the ones that are still around. Do you know we're still finding dinosaurs today? Well, at least the same kinds of things, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe not the ones that are as crazy extreme as they were back then, but when you think about it, when you've got a perfect environment, and you've got dense nutrition, and, uh, and you've got the kind of animal that, that never stops growing, and that's kind of where the dinosaurs are. At some point, if you don't die, you just keep getting really, really big. So today we might not see the same exact thing as they saw back then, uh, but part of that's because we don't have nearly as rich of, a, of an environment as there would have been when God created the earth to begin with. So that's dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. Question two, is baptism for the dead biblical? This is an interesting question. Have you ever heard of baptism for the dead? A couple of you, okay. A few of you shook your head no. Well, it comes from a verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 29 that goes like this. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Well, so that's the, that's the verse, and, and there's a, a church that builds a whole theology around this and does uh, baptism for the dead um, with the expectation that we can vicariously be baptized for somebody who maybe was part of our family or something. And so we were baptized um, on behalf of Uncle Joe, 
And hopefully that will make sure that Uncle Joe gets kind of a pass to go from hell to heaven or something like this. I don't completely understand the theology, so forgive me if I just made that really um, a bad assumption about where they go with that. But, but um, the, the problem is whenever we take a doctrine from one verse, we're almost always going to get it wrong. And, and especially if you think of, if you go through the Bible and you find there's this one odd verse that doesn't seem to line up with anything else, um, probably we're not understanding that verse correctly. So let's, uh, let's kind of look at two things, the context and the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible makes it clear, like in Ezekiel 18.20, you can't, your righteousness can't do anything good for your parent or your son. Um, it says, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. And the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So we can't be righteous for somebody else. Like I said um, a few nights ago, God doesn't have any grandkids. He only has children. You can't make a decision for your kids. They can't just follow along in, in line with you and, and be okay. And, and so being baptized for somebody else, it just doesn't really make sense in the context of what the Bible describes. You can only be baptized for yourself because you have believed and repented and understood uh, the truth about Jesus. And if you look at that, this baptism for the dead verse seems a little bit out of context. So what in the world does 1 Corinthians 15, 29 mean? Well, if you look in the original Greek, there are no punctuation marks. And so translators have to figure out where does the sentence begin and end? And sometimes we bungle it up, right? And I would like to suggest we've bungled this one up. Um, so one way that you could translate this is, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Question mark. Or you could translate it this way. What will they do who are baptized? Join the dead if the dead don't rise at all? And I think this is a case of Paul being a little bit sarcastic. And if you go back to, to just a few verses before in verses 16 and 17, you get the sense of a parallel between what Paul is saying here and what he, just, when he, what he says in, in verse 29. He says, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You see, the context of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the resurrection. And he's saying to a church that is being taught that the resurrection isn't real, he's saying, if there's no resurrection, then what's the point of being a Christian? Your faith is in vain. And then he says, what's the point of being baptized? You're going to die like everybody else anyway. What's the point? And I think that's where he's going. And we just kind of, we've messed up the translation of where we put the question mark, and it's made everybody confused a bit. So, baptism for the, for the dead, it's not in the Bible. So, um, we have a giveaway. Do you have, uh, let me tell you about it. So, this is called A Pale Horse Rides. It's a, a DVD and book set uh, by Sean Boonstra, and uh, it says it's a limited edition. This one is um, in line with the topic that we're, we're talking about tonight, Babylon Rising, and it's, uh, it's a three-part series, Rome is Burning, Barbarian Fire, and an Underground Movement. And I think you'll enjoy this. Who do, who do we get to give this away to tonight? Dagny. Dagny. Ooh, very nice. I think you'll like that one. All right. <laughs> All right, so 
Our subject tonight is Babylon Rising, and I'm excited about this one. I think that you'll enjoy it. All the hard work that we've been doing is going to pay off as we've been building on principles of what, how we interpret Bible prophecy. Uh, we're going to get to apply those principles tonight, and things are going to fall in line. And I think um, what God has done is He's given us an outline, details, clear descriptions that we can then put into history and say, does it fit here? or does it fit here, or does it fit there? And we're going to find that it really only fits in one place. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So tonight, Babylon Rising, not tomorrow night, Friday night, we get to explore Revelation's keys of death. And death is not the best subject. It is not exciting to talk about. Um, But the Bible has quite a lot to say about it, and it has some good things to help us understand what's actually going on. And... uh, I think it's one of those things that the world struggles to understand. Uh, I've done a little bit of research in world religions, and there's all kinds of interesting ideas. Um, and, and what we try to figure out with the afterlife seems to be a solution to the problems that we experience. And so one religion says that the problem with life is, is um, the, the pursuit of pleasure and selfishness. And so um, it... it um, focuses on this, this time when we basically let everything go, and we will finally, after many reincarnations, be in nirvana, which is literally to be non-existent. And that's, that's one way of looking at it. Um, but then we have Christianity that has a few different ways of looking at it, and uh, so we get to explore that from the Bible on Friday night, and I think that's going to be um, a really good experience. So Saturday morning, we're going to throw in an extra one called Secrets of Answered Prayer, 11 o'clock right here. Um, Please come. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And we get to look at a key in the Bible to make sure all of your prayers get answered. How many of you feel like when you pray, your prayers just are going about as high as your ceiling fan or that you're just talking to the windows in your house? Um, So I I want to give you a biblical key to get every one of your prayers answered. And then on Saturday night, God's strange act. It's a a subject that is difficult to talk about. If God is love, then why doesn't everybody get to go to heaven, right? Why is it? I mean, and and not just why don't everybody get to heaven, but what happens to those who don't go to heaven? What does the Bible say about that? And and again, it has to be couched in this question. If God is love, then what then? So then on Sunday, we're going to look at a desolate planet. Some people do go to heaven, and, uh, and we're going to explore what heaven is like and what this new Jerusalem is, and, and, and why does the Bible seem to indicate there's a period of time where the earth is, is desolate and barren? What's going on with that? Um, so then on Tuesday night, we're going to do just a little bit different tack, and we're going to do a subject called How to Postpone Your Funeral. The Bible actually has some, some tips and tricks on your, your body, your health. And the people that have been following what the Bible says are living something like 10 years longer than the general population. And not only that they're living longer, they're not living 10 years longer in a, in a rest home, they're living 10 years longer and feeling good about it. Um, a lot of them are. So, uh, I'll share some of those experiences. But tonight, Revelation 13, Babylon rising. Now, um, this is an interesting subject because it's, it's one of those things, another one, I keep bringing them back, it's another one of those subjects that we used to know. Christians used to know it, but about 
150 years ago or not quite that long ago, uh, we, started, um, we started writing all these different books that kind of go a completely different direction than where the church understood this Revelation 13 prophecy to, to end up. And, uh, and so we get, usually using one or two verses, we get all kinds of ideas. There was a book written that uh, the beast from Revelation 13 was a computer in Belgium. Somebody else said that it was Ronald Wilson Reagan because he has three names and each name has six letters, 666, Ronald um, Reagan. But then there's uh, somebody else, a book that was written that said Barack Obama was the Antichrist, but since he's no longer president, he's no longer the target of of this stuff, and and so um, they've moved on to other ideas. And there's just all kinds of ideas of who the Antichrist is. It's kind of like we're playing pin the tail on the Antichrist, you know? blindfolded. But tonight, I want to just, I just put those books aside, and let's let the Bible tell us what it means, and I think you're going to be surprised, and, and it's going to, uh, you know, we've talked a few times about history, and once or twice, um, I've, I've gotten a comment about, uh, felt like I had a history lesson tonight, and I apologize for that. If you don't love history, a history lesson is not the most exciting thing, but here's the thing. When we look at the Bible, Daniel 2 begins in Daniel's time and fulfills through history until you get to the second coming of Christ, that rock that comes down and destroys the kingdoms of earth and becomes a kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God that it lasts forever. That fulfilling through history means that we, we kind of have to turn around and look at history a little bit in order to understand what the Bible is saying. So forgive me, we're going to do a little bit of history, and I think hopefully it'll be interesting for you tonight. But before we get started, I have two conditions for this study, and I need you to agree to them. Is that okay? I'll tell you what they are, and then you can agree. Condition one, I want you to follow this study all the way through, and I don't want anybody jumping to conclusions. Nobody shout it out ahead of time. Even if you know and you're confident it's right, just don't say it ahead of time. Just keep your mouth closed and let us us process it through all together. And, and it might be that you are super excited about something and then just a, a, a point or two later realize that you were wrong, so you don't want to be embarrassed. Hold your ideas until we get to the end, and then, um, and then we'll, we'll figure it out together. Um, condition number two is when we look at things like beasts in Revelation or in Daniel, uh, we can easily get our focus distracted onto something that's not the central focus. Somebody tell me, what's the central focus or who is the central focus of Revelation? Jesus is. So let's, let's make sure that we don't lose our focus on Jesus. Every single time we open God's Word, we should ask that question, what does this tell me about God? And we should also ask a, a corollary question, what is God inviting me to do or to believe or to think, Right? So let's, as we study this subject of the beast, it's important, we need to understand it, but as we study it, let's, let's keep our, the, the back of our mind kind of rolling about who is Jesus. And I think we'll, we'll have um, a good conclusion if we do. Can you agree to those two conditions? All right, good. Um, so keep our eyes on Jesus, no jumping to conclusions. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, tonight as, uh, as we begin this study, there's at least in my heart a bit of excitement as we turn to the pages of Bible prophecy, partly because I know that this book is your voice and we fully expect to hear you speak. Give us hearts to understand what you're saying and forgive our sins 
Cover us with the blood of Jesus and give us the ability to think clearly and see clearly and give us a deep desire to follow Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. All right, let's dive in. Revelation chapter 13. John is experiencing a vision, and in that vision, he's standing by a river or by a beach, and he sees something really, really weird. Here we go. Revelation 13, starting in the first verse. And we're going to be in two places tonight, Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. If you want to open your Bibles and hold your fingers in those two places, you'll be pretty good most of the time. Revelation 13, 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Could I get, Ryan, could you turn on this TV in the front so I can see what the slide is? Sometimes I hit the button and it doesn't advance, and sometimes I hit it twice and it advances too far. (laughs) It's helpful to see where I'm going. Thank you. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So, let me ask you this. Who is the dragon? Satan. Satan. We know that because in Revelation 12, the dragon, there was war in heaven, and the dragon and his angels fought with uh, Michael and his angels, and the dragon was cast out. And then it says that the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan… So there's no question about it. Revelation 12 makes it clear the dragon is Satan. Okay, um, and, and uh, let's see. Revelation 12 says this. He said to me, the waters, well, that's interesting. I don't have a slide in there. Never mind. <laughs> okay, so um, what about these heads? What are the heads? Has, it has seven heads, and, and it says in Revelation um, 12, I saw one of its heads as if it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Well, that's Revelation 13. I've got it. Sorry about that. So, this is one of the more unsettling passages in Scripture. It's, it's got these seven heads, ten horns, this one head is wounded and, and comes back to life. All, all kinds of interesting things are going on here. Um, and, and we have to ask the question, what does this represent? What's the, the point of this beast coming out of the sea? Well, let's start kind of breaking it down because there's a lot of pieces here, and let's begin with the first one. He saw a beast coming out of where? The sea. All right, what's the sea represent? All right, um, where do we find that in the Bible? Revelation chapter 17 Um, It has a companion prophecy to Revelation 13. There's another beast, and on that beast is a woman sitting, which in this case happens to be a harlot, not the pure woman of Revelation 12, but um, a a different context there. And it's got this, this strange beast, and it says in Revelation 17, 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So when, when the Bible says something about waters in this context of prophecy, um, think about groups of people, a large body of water, a large group of people. And, and this wouldn't have been a strange way of, of describing things for the people in John's time because the Jews saw the Gentiles as the sea. They would describe the Gentiles around Israel as the sea, and they called the, the, the land of Israel or Judea, they called that the island. They were an island in the midst of the Gentiles. 
in their minds. And so, in this case, whenever we see this, this beast coming up out of the sea, we see something coming up out of the Gentile nations, the Gentile people. And you got to wonder, why does it look so strange? I mean, have you seen a, one, a beast that looks kind of like this, maybe some kind of animal at the nature reserve nearby? If you did, then you'd be telling everybody about it and taking pictures, right? But of course, you wouldn't have had your camera that day, um, so bummer. But no, you wouldn't see this because this is symbolic imagery. It's intended to be something that we, we take the pieces of and figure out what they mean. It's not intended to be a nature show. And this is clearly not something that we'd find in nature. Um, but how do we understand it? How do we know what these things mean? Now, remember, if we're going to understand Revelation, which has like two-thirds of it referencing imagery from the Old Testament, we really need to be looking at the rest of the Bible. So, let's turn to Daniel chapter 7, where we see a prophecy that matches almost word for word, um, a little bit different context, but it'll help us understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 13. Daniel chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 2 and 3 to begin with. Now, this one um, is uh, Daniel, and he has this vision, and he says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, this is, it's a very similar vision. Um, In Revelation 13, we see one beast and all these features a kind of a conglomerate beast. But here in Daniel 7, we're going to see four different beasts, each one with similar features to what Revelation 13 describes. Now, the question is, what does an animal in prophecy represent? What's a beast represent? A kingdom or a, a nation? Daniel 7:17 7, says, those great beasts which are four are four kings. And then in verse 23, it says that they are four kingdoms. So a king or a kingdom. A beast represents either a king or a kingdom. And uh, when, when we look at Daniel 7, keep in mind we're covering the exact same historical ground as we did in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 8. It's, it's tracking with a little bit different perspective and maybe some more details. It's tracking the same timeline. And uh, so, just because it's been a few days since we covered it, we're going to look at Daniel 2 real quick. Um, The head, what did the head represent? I gave you a cheat sheet, didn't I? (laughs) Babylon. And the chest and arms were Medo-Persia. Remember, it was that combined empire. The the belly and thighs and the, the legs were of Rome, good. And, and then the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, and what did they represent? The, the divided Western Roman Empire. And remember, Rome had two divisions. Before, when it was still a, a huge empire, it was divided into the eastern and western halves. And it's kind of fun that, that it describes it with two legs, isn't it? And then um, when, when Rome breaks into pieces, into the, West, the Western Roman Empire breaks into to pieces, how many tribes did it break into? Ten. And it's around 476 AD that that happened, uh, fragmenting into that Western Roman Empire. Then we looked at Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, we, this was at the very end of the, the Babylonian Empire, and so Babylon doesn't even show up in the vision. And, and so the first thing we see is this, um, the, this ram with two horns. And what did that ram represent? 
Medo-Persia. And if you remember, we had the Medes, which started the, the whole um, partnership, and the Persians came in later, but pretty quickly dominated. Uh, and so you have two horns. And then the, the, the goat that comes in with a dominant horn, what does the goat represent? And the, and the horn? All right, so Greece and the first king was Alexander, but you might remember that the horn broke off and that there were four horns that came up to take its place. And what were those four horns? All right, so the, the, there was no, um, no heir, and so uh, Alexander's kingdom was broken up into four parts by his generals. And then from the, um, uh, from the, there's this little horn that comes up from one of the four winds, one of the four points of the compass, and this little horn represents the united and then ultimately the divided Roman Empire. So that's, that's kind of the ground that we covered. Tonight we're going to go through the same, same sequence of events, same sequence of kingdoms, but from a different perspective. And Daniel 7, verse 4, gives us the first beast in the series. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Uh, so let me ask you a question. If you're comparing this with Daniel chapter 2, which is the first kingdom? Babylon. Does Babylon fit with this description from Daniel chapter 7? Absolutely it does. In fact, the walls of Babylon were covered with frescoes of lions with eagle's wings. This is a, a, a common thing back in Daniel's time. When Daniel wrote that down, everybody would have said, oh, that's, that's Babylon. That represents Babylon. And uh, that, that winged lion represents the Babylonian Empire. It's clear as day for anybody who is, um, has that historical background. Um, and in fact, when you think about this, um, what would the wings represent, just out of curiosity? Because everything has a, a, a purpose when God shares it in this prophetic context. Somebody says speed, okay. Well, you can find that just to clarify that. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians would invade Israel with the speed of an eagle and that hastens to eat, it says. And in Jeremiah 4.13, it says that the horses of Babylonians are swifter than eagles. There's something about this speed that's connected to the, the bird wings on this, um, on this lion. And historically, that's true. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes Jerusalem, and it didn't really take that much time, and, uh, and then goes back. So what about the next animal? That's Babylon. Daniel chapter 7, 5 introduces a bear. Suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Now this is a new perspective, but it's still the same um, the same progress. What's the next kingdom after Babylon? Medo-Persia. And if you remember in Daniel 8, we had um, a ram with two horns, and here we have a bear that's with one of its shoulders higher than the other. And, and even in Daniel 8, it described how the, Med the, the Persians would come in second, but rise to be greater than the first. And that's what we see in the, in the vision of Daniel 7, is that one side is higher than the other. But what are those ribs in its mouth? It, it did, in fact. In, in Babylon ends up kind of in, the, in, in three regions. There's the Egypt, Lydia, and, uh, and the Babylonian part. And, and they end up conquering all three of these 
and taking over even a larger portion of the world than Babylon had been ruling over. Um, all right, so the bear is Medo-Persia. Now, this isn't too hard, right? We're just taking, we're taking the historical facts and we're matching them to what the Bible says, right? Not, not a big thing, not, not a big deal here. Daniel chapter 7, verse 6 introduces a third um, animal. This one's a leopard. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So which is the kingdom that should be coming next? Greece. And does this kingdom, does this beast match the kingdom? Well, we have a couple things. If Babylon has wings because it's speedy, this one has two sets of wings. Two sets of wings, um, what would that rec- uh, suggest to you? Very fast, right? And uh, knowing the history of Greece, how quickly did Alexander the Great conquer the world? It was like three or four years, right? Six, ten, four, I don't know. It was not a very long period of time, and he conquers the entire world. It was rapid. So the leopard is Greece. Now, what were the four heads? What do you think? Yeah, those generals, just like the four horns represented the four divisions, this represents the four divisions by four heads. Now, um, there, there's one more kingdom, and what do you think it's going to represent? Rome, yeah, that was the next kingdom in the process, so let's see if it matches up. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. Remember, what are the legs made out of? Iron. And this one has iron teeth, and, and it's conquering and devouring and breaking in pieces. And, and that really does match with the historical record of what happens with Rome. Rome brings its, its Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, in through force, and it just conquers the world, and a much bigger swath of the world than anybody else had conquered before it. Now, notice that it says it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. How many horns did it have? Okay, ten horns. So let's do just a little bit of math. How many heads have we seen in Daniel chapter 7? We've got four beasts, and then one of those beasts has three extra horns. I mean, not horns, heads. How many heads do we have so far? We've got seven heads. So in Daniel 7, we have seven heads, and on this last beast, we have ten horns. And how many heads did the beast in Revelation have? Seven heads, and it also had ten horns. So this, do you see the, the comparison here? Now, this one, the, the fourth animal is Rome. And, and when you see the, the ten horns on this fourth animal, um, you're, you're thinking, or you should be thinking, that Rome ends up breaking into ten divisions, ten tribes. And how many toes are on that, uh, that statue in Daniel 10, or Daniel 2? <laughs> ten, yeah, I gave it away, sorry. <laughs> ten toes, ten horns. We've got this, this connection. The breakup of Rome ends up into ten different parts. So we already know that the Western Roman Empire is these ten different kingdoms, and we've talked about it before. There was all these different, uh, different tribes. The Anglo-Saxons up in the north who eventually become the Britons or the British, and then you have the Franks who become the French, the Visigoths settle in the region that eventually becomes Spain, the Suevi move into what we now call Portugal, Um, the Burgundies occupy what is now Switzerland and a bit of France, 
the Alamanni eventually move into the region now called Germany. The Lombards started in the north, but eventually moved into Italy. And, and then you have the Hurili and the Vandals and the Ostrogoths, which are no longer in existence today. So, so far, that's review. That's, that's what we've already covered. That's the history we've already been over a couple times. Um, and uh, now we, we need to focus on something that's new. It's new information, and it's, it's going to help us understand what this Revelation 13 beast is all about. And, and so I want to slow it down just a little bit and focus really carefully on the different points the Bible makes. Starting in Daniel 7, verse 8. I was considering the horns, Daniel says, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So this horn is different. None of the other horns have been described as having eyes and mouth and stuff like this. And and when you think about it, what would the eyes suggest? If you look around uh, the Bible, it has this idea of eyes being um, either wisdom, like there's uh, the, the, the lamb in Revelation is said to have seven eyes. There's something about knowing, knowledge that's connected here. But there's also something about kind of cunning or, or like, um, not, not just like good wisdom, but, you know, the, the, the treacherous wisdom that's also involved here. And in one place, um, the Bible says, it's Second Chronicles chapter 16, it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the earth, searching us out. And uh, this particular um, horn with eyes, it, it doesn't have the same kind of loving intent that, that God does when it's hunting and searching, but it does have those eyes. And then it says it speaks pompous words. Or if you look in the King James Version, it says that it speaks great things. Now, that could be just a really fantastic orator, (laughs) or it could mean something else. And if you look in Revelation 13, it it gives a little bit more direct meaning for what this is. Revelation 13 says, well, I didn't put a a slide in there for it, but Revelation 13 says that it it speaks blasphemy. Um, So, Now, we don't want to jump to any conclusions yet, but um, let's start building a case. Let's say point one, point two, what do we see in the Bible? What are the evidences for this this, um, entity, this beast from Revelation 13? Um, So, the first one is that it's a small kingdom that comes up from these ten tribes, these barbarian tribes. And um, let's see… The second thing is that it appears on the world sometime after 476, and, and this is because after, it has to be after these ten horns happen, right? And the, the ten horns are the division of Western Europe, which happens when Rome kind of falls to pieces in 476 AD. So it has to come up after these ten horns in order to, to fit. Um, and we know that it uproots three of the ten tribes, and, uh, and so far, that's all we know. So, let's add a few more pieces. Look at verse 24 in Daniel 7. It says that he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. All right, different. Um, the three kings is not new. That's the ten tribes. Three out of the ten horns are, are um, destroyed by it, but, but it says it's different. It's somehow not the same kind of kingdom as the ones that it came up from. And... Uh, 
And then it says um, in Daniel 7.25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Um, and uh, that's Revelation 13.5 is the one I was thinking of. He, shall, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, all right? So we have this pompous words or great things or blasphemies that uh, this thing is speaking. And uh, when, uh, when we look at this word blasphemy, uh, it's, it's not just talking about saying something like taking God's name in vain or speaking um, some kind of uh, harsh language or whatever. John would have understood blasphemy to be something like what the, the uh, um, Jewish leaders thought of Jesus. Um, in John 10, it says, the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus claiming to be God, um, in, it was in a synagogue, he was reading something, and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in, in your presence, claiming that he was the Messiah. And uh, so they, they took him out to try to stone him. And they said that him claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be God, that's blasphemy. And so John would have understood that as well, uh, um, as blasphemy. And then um, another thing, in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, we find that this, this lawless one, this uh, man of sin that he describes, it says that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so this, this power, uh, this lawless one that, that Paul describes as coming up at the end time, it, he says that it, it, it's somebody or something who claims to be God, to be in the place of God. And when you think about Revelation 13, this beast that comes up out of the sea, it says that uh, he, he is um, given his authority by, by what power? It's the, the, the dragon, right? And the dragon, Lucifer, in heaven, what did he claim? He said, I'm going to sit on the mountain of God. Right? He, he claims to take the place of God. And, and so the Bible calls this blasphemy. But there's another uh, thing the Bible says is blasphemy. And it's again the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the priests talking to Jesus. And Jesus has just healed a man. And before he healed the man, he said, your sins are forgiven you. And they said, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, could Jesus forgive sins? Absolutely, because he's God. But when they were looking at him, they weren't, they weren't seeing the Messiah. They weren't seeing Jesus as God. They were seeing somebody who is blaspheming in their minds. And so, this, um, this beast uh, the, this little horn in Daniel 7, the beast in Revelation 13, it speaks great words or blasphemy. All right, so our next clue, Daniel 7, 25, it says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. So the Bible says that this is a persecuting power, and Revelation 13 confirms this in the comparison beast. It says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So this is a power that turns its wrath against anybody that doesn't cooperate. And so let's, let's add that one to the list. It's a persecuting power. And uh, number seven, we find also in Daniel 7.25, it says, he shall intend to change times and law. Intend to change time and law. Now, we've looked at this particular verse before, and you might be like, oh, I know what that one is. Um, but again, just hold your thought. We'll put it all together towards the end. 
For now, let's just add it to that list. And then an eighth point comes from Daniel 7.25 as well. And it says, the saints, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, a times, and half a time. And now we get to do a little bit of math. How many, how many uh, know how long a time period is time times and a half a time? All right, we've got a few hands. Um, let's find it in the Bible. Uh, Daniel chapter 4 describes the experience of Nebuchadnezzar when God humbled him, and he had to eat humble pie for seven times, and, and that humble pie was in the form of straw because he was wandering around, sleeping under the, the stars, eating grass, and just acting like a crazy man. Um, and, and that was a judgment of God on him to humble him, and, and it says seven times. Now, we know that to be seven years, and, and when you look at Daniel 4 and Daniel 7, this word times, it's the Hebrew word inad. And inad, is, it just means a period of time. And it's always translated or can always be translated as a year. And, and if you were to, to translate this kind of literally into the English language, you would say seven time or one time, one time around the sun or two times around the sun or half a time around the sun or, or one calendar year or two calendar years, right? So, a time would be one year, times would be two, and half a time would be half a year. So, that would be three and a half years. Now, I'm not making that up. That's just the word. That's the the Hebrew word. And we can find a corollary. Um, Let's just uh, do a little bit of quick math in our heads. Um, Three and a half years. How many months are in a year? 12, okay? So, if you multiply 12 by three and a half, what would be the number that you'd get? 12 times three is 36, plus six more, you get to be 42, okay? Now, if you look in Revelation 13, 5, you find that, and it says, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So, we have the same number, uh, but described two different ways. And in Revelation 12, it states the same number in a little bit different way. Um, How many days are in a Jewish calendar year? 360, not 365 like ours, just 360. And so, in in Daniel's terms, a a year would be 360 days. Three and a half years would then be 1,260 days. So, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. And it's described in all of those ways. Daniel 12, the, this God's people are persecuted. They have to run away into the wilderness, and they're persecuted for three and a half years or 1,260 days. And, and when we look at Bible prophecy, what does a day equal? It's a symbolic thing. It equals a year. So, 1,260 literal years. So, let's add that to the list, 1,260 days or, or years. All right, so now we're finished. That's the the majority of the points, we could probably add one or two here or there, but we're just going to stop there because that's um, the, the stuff we find right in Daniel 7. Um, so, we've got this, uh, it's a small kingdom, comes up from the ten tribes after the tribes break apart uh, from the Roman Empire in 476 AD. Um, it, this little horn destroys three of the tribes, and uh, it's different than all the rest. It speaks blasphemy. It persecutes God's people. It thinks to change times and laws, and that persecution of God's people lasts, and its power continues for 1,260 years. Those are the pieces. And if we, if we put those into a diagram or something, we should be able to find that in history somewhere, right? So, let's see. 
Um, don't, don't say who you think it is, but um, if we look at all these pieces, the short answer is that this is a story of Christian history. The, the Old Testament, when God is, is addressing problems, He's addressing those problems to His people Israel. And in the New Testament, um, when He's addressing problems, He's addressing problems in the church, right? And so when we look at when we look at this history, we're looking at the history of Christians. And Revelation 13 is, is pointing at somebody, is pointing at Christians in the dark ages. And, and honestly, it's hard to admit some of the things we're about to look at, but history knows it, the world knows it. Um, if you read atheists and, and what they're writing about Christians, they know it. And so, we shouldn't be ashamed to look at that history and to say, you know, maybe eat some humble pie and to say, we need to, to recognize what God is saying here. All right, first, let's, uh, let's look at the evidence and let's see if it matches to make sure. Um, it says that it is a small kingdom and it comes up among the barbarians. Um, does the... Um, uh, does the Christian church in the Middle Ages create a small empire, small kingdom that comes up among those um, barbarian tribes? Absolutely. Um, and it's still there. Instead of waiting for the kingdom of Christ after Constantine, we turned the church into a political power, and we married the church and the state. And that's different it, it's a small kingdom, comes up among the barbarians, but it's, a, it's also different than the others. Did it rise after 476? Absolutely. And I'll describe that in a little bit of detail here. Um, and, and the second question, did it destroy three of the ten tribes? Absolutely it did. Um, in fact, it was in the year of 533 that... Um, well, you've got, you've got this guy named Justinian. He's a Christian emperor in Constantinople, and he kind of just gives the kingdom, the Western Europe kingdoms, to the church and says to the, the, the head of the, the church in Rome, um, you're in charge now. And uh, the, the, Western, the Western kingdoms just kind of collapses, and the Eastern Roman Empire stays on for a little bit while longer. So, this is the quote from, from Justinian. He declares that the Bishop of Rome is the head of all the holy churches. And, uh, and then when you, when you see what happens, the, the, uh, in order for this Roman pontiff to have power and to have control over the Western uh, kingdoms or the, the Western tribes, he has to, to defeat some obstinate tribes. Um, and they happen to be the Vandals, the Hurrieli, and the Ostrogoths. And so he gets the, some, some soldiers from Justinian, and he goes and he, he attacks these, these um, three tribes. First of all, in 493, the Hurrieli are defeated. And um, in, in the, the Hurrieli are the ones... 
Well, I don't think they, they have it on here, or if they do, I'm not seeing it off the top of my head. So in, in 493, the Hurrieli are defeated, and they just disappear. You can't find them any, anymore. That, that horn is plucked up. In 534, they turn their attention to the vandals that are there in North Africa. And, uh, and then, if you think about it, the vandals there are these really harsh tribe, and they, they do terrible things. And even today, we have remnants of, of them, even though we don't actually have the tribe anymore. Somebody who goes and, and messes with somebody else's property, what do we call them? A vandal. <laughs> we call it vandalism. So we still have the, the memory of the, the terrible things that this tribe did, but um, they are destroyed and no longer uh, with us anymore, totally gone. Then in 537, the church went to war with the Ostrogoths, the Eastern Goths, and they defeated them. And so we don't, we don't have them anymore. That horn is gone. And so by, by 538, um, and it was spring of 538 that uh, the Ostrogoths were de- defeated. By 538, you have this little kingdom that has defeated three of the other tribes and, and is now the head of the Western uh, world. And, and it's interesting because this, this little kingdom ends up controlling and pulling the strings in every other kingdom in Europe. Um, it says it's different, a different kingdom. And I mentioned this before, it's different because it's this connection between church and state. And you don't have a king, you don't have a senate, you have, um, you have this, this religious leader and, and a few people around him. And they end up having tremendous influence over all the other kings. In fact, um, before long, if you wanted to be king and you were the next in line, your dad had died or whatever, and you're the next king, um, in order to be inaugurated king, the, the church had to put the crown on you. For centuries, this was the case. So, a different kingdom, a religious kingdom, does it fit? Yeah, it does. The fifth point, it would speak great words or blasphemy. And to be honest, this is not uh, the comfortable part. Um, when we look at, at history, we have to be honest with ourselves, though. And so here's, here's a, a little bit of, of history. We're going to look at the words of the church in the Middle Ages, and we're going to see, does it, does it match up? In the 19th century, uh, this is towards the end of the Dark Ages, Pope Leo XIII said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Maybe you could get away with saying because this is God's church or something like this, but that's not what, what they, they meant when they said that. Pope Pius X spells it out a little bit more clearly. The Pope is not only the, repentant, uh, the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh. We've looked at other people who've said that they were Jesus, and remember when, what Jesus said, if they say they're in the desert, don't go out. If, if they say they're, they're in the, 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 the inner room, don't go and find them. And then he describes how he's going to come. So Jesus, he was here before, then he's in heaven, and then he's going to come the second time. Um, that's Jesus. We shouldn't be fooled by false Christs, right? Now, should we be saying this kind of thing? Should any, anybody ever say this kind of thing? No. No, this is, this is not a good thing to say. Um, but back in the year 1512, Christopher Marcellus, 
he stood up at the Fifth Lateran Council, the last ecumenical council before the Reformation started, and he said this to the Pope, For thou art our shepherd, thou art physician, thou art governor, thou art husband, men, thou finally art another God on earth. And he should have been taken out and, and dismissed, right? Nobody should have, have been happy with what he said, uh, but everybody there clapped and applauded and agreed. And, and the question is, why? Well, the reality is this is what the church was teaching. This, is, um, this was everywhere. Uh, Boniface the Eighth said the same thing, I am all in all and above all, so that God himself and I, the vicar of God, hath both one consistory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. Wow. The Bible says the little horn would speak pompous words, would speak blasphemies, and the sad truth is, it fits. This is an entry from Ferrari's Ecclesiastical Dictionary in the 1700s. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God. The Pope is called most holy because he is rightfully presumed to be such. Hence, the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as King of heaven and of earth and the lower region. Moreover, the superiority and the power of the Roman pontiff by no means pertain only to heavenly things, to earthly things, and to things under the earth, but are even over angels, then whom he is greater, so that if, he were, if it were possible that the angels might err from the faith, they could be judged and excommunicated by the Pope, for he is of so great dignity and power that the forms of one and the same tribunal with Christ, so that whatever the Pope does seems to proceed from the mouth of God. The Pope is, as it were, God on earth." I could go on for hours because this is all over the place in the literature during that time. And the question is, does the, the church in the Middle Ages speak pompous words? Absolutely. Point number six, the little horn would be a persecuting power. We don't have to spell this out. If you know anything about history during the, the, the Dark Ages, you know that the church persecuted anybody that disagreed with them. And uh, they, they certainly went after, in the Crusades, the Islam, and uh, had all kinds of wars with them. But uh, when they had driven them out of Spain and driven them out of the, the, Holy, the Holy Land there, um, they, uh, they turned those armies onto anybody who disagreed with, uh, with the, the people in power. In uh, 1908, the Western Watchman said this, the church has persecuted only a tiro in church history would deny that. I'm not quite sure what a tiro is. If you know afterwards, maybe you can tell me. <laughs> but I think it means somebody like a dunce or somebody who doesn't know anything. That's my guess. Here's what it looked like back in the dark days of Christian church. This is a page from ecclesial, ecclesiastical law. The church may, be, may by divine right confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. Apparently, the church, believing itself to be God on earth, felt comfortable trying to reproduce hell as well. As many as 50 million people died under the tyranny of the church in the Dark Ages. Back in 1572, on the Feast of St. Bartholomew, um, a signal was given, 
and it was suddenly open season on anybody who is a heretic. And among them were people who held Bibles, because the Bible was the sole um, domain of the church, and they literally chained them to the pulpits. In fact, many churches didn't even have a Bible in them. They were in libraries and locked away, and, and many priests never read the Bible. So if you had a Bible, you were considered a heretic. 30,000 were dragged from their homes and put to death in a single day at the Feast of Bartholomew in 1572. Where did we learn to do stuff like that? I mean, was Jesus going around burning people at the stake? No, we didn't learn it from Jesus. We learned it from Rome. And so you see this, the, the feet that are partly of iron and partly of clay, we still have the Roman Empire in the mix. The Roman, and, and in, it's, it's kind of, it goes back farther than that. If you think about it, who was the first person who didn't like somebody's religion and decided to kill him for it? Cain. Cain decided he was going to do his own thing, make his own religion. And like Lucifer, put himself in the place of God. And when Abel decided that he was going to follow God faithfully, Cain didn't like it and killed him for it. The seventh point, the little horn would think to change times and laws. There's no question about this one. Pope Nicholas in 1661 said this, Wherefore, no marvel it, if it be in my power to disperse with all things, yea, with the precepts of Christ. Now, did we really have that power? No, nobody has that power. Of course not. But we told ourselves that we did. And uh, from the Ferrari's Ecclesiastical Dictionary, the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. Wow. And you've, you've seen this one from Heinrich Holtzman before. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of Scriptures because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by command of Christ, but by its own authority. So, does it fit? Did it think to change times and laws? Absolutely. And uh, the, the next point, this was a power that would reign for 1260 days or years. Let's just uh, do a little bit of math here. When did, when did the... Uh, the, the church in, in this time, the Middle Ages, when did it gain power? Justinian said in 538, or 533 that it could, could do stuff, but it had to uproot those three kingdoms in order to really be in control. And, uh, and it wasn't until 538 when they actually had control and started to rule in Western Europe. And if you go 1,260 years from there, just do a little bit of math. There's no zero year, so we don't have to add anything. It's just 538 plus 1,260. What do you get? 1798. And so if it started in 538, you'd expect something to happen in 1798. And it did, in fact, happen. At Christmas time in 1797, um, the impact of the French Revolution was in full swing, and a guy named Joseph Bonaparte um, believed deeply in the principles of the revolution. And you might, that, that name might sound familiar because Joseph was the brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. So Joseph was in Rome at the time, and uh, he decides that he's going to encourage the Italians um, to um, maybe push aside the monarchy and put up a republic instead. And he throws a party, a Republican party. <laughs> and, uh, and in this party, 
um, things maybe got a little bit out of hand. The drunken crowd spilled out into the street, and Pope Pius VI decided to send his army to um, control the situation. And in the process, he killed Brigadier General Dufon, and he happened to be a high-ranking French commander. And Napoleon Bonaparte had had enough. He was done with those Italians. And so he sent another um, another general down there named Berthier, and Berthier was in command of a, a decently sized army, bigger than, than the, um, Roman, uh, the Roman army at the time. And so he came down and he defeated anybody that was going to, to fight against him, and he took the Pope captive and then and, and marched him off away from, from Italy. And he eventually died about a year later. But it, would, it had been the, the past couple years that Napoleon had been systematically dismantling the church's grasp on the world. Um, up until this time, um, when, when somebody maybe with wealth and power and, and land, when they might die, the church had said that they could um, have spiritual benefits and their children and their grandchildren would have spiritual benefits if they give, gave their property to the church. And so many of them gave their property to the church, and, and a, a working farm became a working tax-paying farm became a monastery that was exempt from taxes. And so uh, each of the empires in Western Europe was systematically over time decreasing in the amount of taxes and in the number of soldiers that they had. And and uh, when Napoleon goes through, he takes down the monarchy and seizes all the assets of the church and brings them back into the into the, the government. So the government has control of more property now. And the church doesn't have it. And it's been the last couple of years that that's been happening. And so by the time he takes the Pope captive, not only is the Pope captive and dies in, in, in captivity, but the, the church throughout the entire Western Europe was completely cast out of power right on schedule, 1798, 1260 years after it all began. Does it fit? It does. So let's take another quick look. A small kingdom comes up from among the barbarians, appears after 476 AD, destroys three of the ten tribes, a different kingdom, great words or blasphemy, a persecuting power. It thinks to change times and laws. 1260 days is the time frame of its rule. Hmm. And there's, there's a troubling part that Revelation 13 adds to this story. And it says, and we read it before, it says, And I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And was it mortally wounded in 1798? Absolutely. But then it says, His deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Is it going to happen again? You'll have to keep coming to find out. But here's the lesson for tonight. You and I have a choice to make. When we follow, we're going to follow somebody. Will we follow the dragon or will we follow the lamb? There's always been two camps, Cain and Abel, the dragon or the lamb. There's always been two camps from the very beginning, and there's only two camps today. Who do you want to follow? I'd like to suggest that you follow the Lamb. <laughs> he is the only safe way to go. He's, he's the only one that actually has your best interests in mind. He loves you more than anything, 
and he wants you to be with him. And, and the dragon, he doesn't care a bit about you. All he wants is your destruction. Who are you following? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being so open and honest with us. When we take a look at history, we see that um, many people who claim to follow you were really following the dragon. And we don't want to be that, Lord. We don't want to be two-faced, saying that we're going to follow you in public, but behind the scenes and in our hearts, uh, intentionally putting you on the cross. We want to follow you, Jesus, and I just pray that, that you would draw our hearts to you and help us to live one face with, with one direction in mind and follow you with all of our hearts. And I pray that as we do, that people would recognize the clear influence of Jesus in our lives. Help us to look at him. Help us to, to sound like him and look like him and walk like him. Let us be ready when he comes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.